0: From Madison, Wisconsin, in the United States of global hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host, Eric P. Y'all ready for this? So powerful.
1: Found that not only pounds queens, it is. A few heart-stopping seconds of anxiety. so I'm a teacher. Y'all ready for this? So powerful. Found that not only pounds are queens, it is. Hello, Earthlings, and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Bietrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scaff, in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Skartol, in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is Saturday, the 23rd of March, 2013. On this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope, bitch. A brand new kid
0: in the show, biz. With knowledge, I persevere. Fill
1: in space drop the with a taste Does that work? Putting the <laughs> date at the start of the show? I feel like I I I, I ought to let people know where we're at in the time space continuum when we start these shows. So let me know how that's working out. The other thing I need to let you know is I I, I realize sometimes I listen to the show after I record it. It's kind of silly, I know, and you know that's my ego at war with itself or whatever. But <clears throat> I'm trying to talk and run on sentences less often, because I know that once I start talking, I, I just get, I keep going and going, and I, and I add all these things, and I go off on these tangents, and I suddenly remember a Simpsons line, and and that's that's not always good radio, right? Um, you know, the Buddhist maxim says, "Only speak if you can improve on silence," and that's something. It's not that I've never really learned that lesson. It's that everything I say is an improvement on silence. I'm a teacher. I'm supposed to be imparting wisdom to the world. That's my job, man. The state of Wisconsin, the state of Florida, uh, the University of Florida's uh, College of Education, they've all said this guy knows what he's doing. Give him a microphone. I have two microphones in my classroom. I use them once each semester. That students come in, I give them a chance to get to know me. Hey, uh, Mr. is a lunatic psychopath noise machine. And then uh, I come; they come in like the fourth or fifth week, and i have the mic. Oh, welcome everyone! And they say, who gave you a microphone? But, of course, the rooms are outfitted with two microphones for each teacher, you know, backup, or there's one that's a handheld, and you can use it with the kids, or there's one you can wear around your neck. And it makes a lot of sense for teachers who are relatively quiet, you know, and they can amplify their voice. But I don't have that problem, so it seems like the school could have saved some money uh, and uh, not installed the microphones in my classroom, although I will say that they are useful. You know, know, we have the hip-hop class, and they do an open mic, and they want to amplify. You know, it's good to have your voice. Whatever. Speaking of the classroom, for some reason I wanted to mention that I have this thing that I do... I write the Daily Agenda, and then I have the journal topics and the quote of the day on the board, right? And I put it all up on the board uh, normally. Like, okay, I use a different color marker every week for, you know, the lines, and then I use the text with black. It's all very, you know sophisticated trying to go for good clean design but with enough variety to keep people interested most students I don't think even look at the quote of the week or the quote of the day but whatever it's it it is what it is I want that information to be there for them if they choose to use it okay and so every once a semester I write the boards upside down and I've gotten pretty good at writing upside down and some of the students get so pissed off when I write the boards upside down, you can't believe how angry they are about it. It's one little difference in in their routine, and they just go ballistic. They get furious. Like, oh, you're you know the first day it's like, what is this? Why are you doing that? And then the second day they're like, why don't you write normal? And it gives me a chance to say, hey. What is normal? What do you mean by normal? And they're like, right shut up. Which is the right side? What are you talking about? You know, and it gives us a chance to interrogate those words. But I'm just stunned at how furious they get. And I think it's kind of sad because it suggests that either they're so comfortable that anything that, you know, alters their regular view of things is just an abomination, or, and I, this might be true for a few of them, but I, I think it's a pretty small minority, uh, you know, I think there probably are some kids who whose lives tend to be very tumultuous, you know, and maybe, you know, the parents got divorced, or, or maybe they don't even know their parents, or whatever it is, like, you know, kids who have been through, you know what I'm saying, like, legitimate struggle and sacrifice and, and you know, problems like that. Uh, And I don't want to, you know, Mother Jones said, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. So if there are students who who are frustrated because they're so used to things being chaotic, I don't want to make that worse. But on the other hand, I find that students that I know who have had a rough time, when I do something like that and try to mess with people's heads, they, they kind of, I don't know, I think they get a kick out of it sometimes. So whatever. I'm not really that bothered. I just think it's amazing that people get so, whoa, worked up. Anyway, uh, the this episode is brought to you by the following action. Tell Obama not to appoint fracking advocate Dr. Ernest Moniz to the Department of Energy. Um, there's this fracking thing. We'll talk about fracking later in the show. But uh, it's it, no, we don't want this Moniz character uh, in the Department of Energy. Uh, the U.S. Department of Energy needs to be protecting us. And too often it does the bidding of... Oil, coal, nuclear companies, and we get the shaft. Uh, this episode is also brought to you by Take a Place at the Table. Uh, there's this really good documentary film about hunger in America, and it's called A Place at the Table. And there's an action series of actions that you can take um, involving the USDA uh, subsidies and involving food stamps and things like that. And it's a really good movie because they really do a good job of. Analyzing what the nature of the problem is when it comes to hunger in America, and they point out that we had hunger um, nearly defeated in the 1970s. We were we were really close to just sort of solving the hunger problem, and then priorities shifted and money changed, and the the, the sources of what the you know USDA was subsidizing and how they were uh, implementing things like food stamps, uh, and we've shifted over time, you know, especially the 80s and 90s very deliberately from a society that uses government to try to take care of things like hunger to a society that says, well, government won't do anything, you know, government will do very, very little, government will take care of the worst of the worst, and private charities will probably step up and do the best they can to solve the problems on their own. And and this whole focus against government is one that has sort of dictated our national priorities and our national policies. And as a result, we've seen hunger spike incredibly. And we've seen The difficulties uh, of people and families who are, are in hunger situations, you know, they're at risk for food insecurity. There's all these terms. Basically, they don't have enough to eat. Right. But there's all these terms that government and pundits use to make, you know, sometimes terms changing is important and relevant. But I think food insecurity sounds stupid. I think it's they're just hungry. They ain't got enough to eat. So, whatever. Carlin did a whole thing about euphemisms, and I think that's true in this case. Anyway, the website, A Place at the Table, has information about where you can see the movie, and you can watch it online, you can you know pay six bucks and download it through iTunes or whatever. And they also have some actions you can take to uh, step up. I think that's probably in the U.S. only. Um, but it's a great movie, you should totally watch it. And one of the most interesting things that they said is you know, there's this whole notion that, oh, how can there be hungry people in America? Everyone's so fat. But this one guy makes a very good point. You know, we think of obesity and hunger as being polar opposites. But in fact, they're neighbors when it comes to discussions of hunger, because people who don't have a lot of money to eat, they they have to make that money stretch more. And the stuff that's cheapest to get is the unhealthiest food. So, it, the the poorer you are, the less healthy the food is you're going to consume by and large, and that has a lot to do with again subsidies. What does the USDA subsidize? It subsidizes corn, which is used for corn syrup, which makes things sugary. It subsidizes um, a lot of the foods that are in junk foods, you know, peanuts and 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 um, you know, breads, carbohydrates, things like that. And meanwhile, f- fruits, vegetables, you know, these things are Not subsidized, and therefore they're harder to get, and um, they're more expensive. So whatever. See the movie A Place at the Table, and go to the website, and I'll have a link on it on my site fbesp.org/synapse, and you can go and take action. And if we're going to keep this rate up, we're never going to get through the show. So let's talk about some current events. 14 adults have been cured of HIV. I, I, am I, I'm, f- I'm flabbergasted with how momentous this story appears to be. Because it, when I first heard about it, when I first saw, I think I saw it on Reddit or something. I, my thought was, oh, right, some nutcase in you know some secluded Romanian village has p- just said, I cured for you know friends of mine from HIV or whatever. But this is like a legit story. It appears that 14 adults have actually been cured and the cured is in quotation marks of HIV. Here's what the article says and this is from uh newscientist.com but it's been reported in a lot of other places too. Assier Saez sirion of the Pasteur Institute's unit for regulation of retroviral infections in Paris analyzed 70 people with HIV who had been treated with antiretroviral drugs (ARVs) between 35 days and 10 weeks after infection. Must much sooner than people are normally treated. All of the participants' drug regimes had been interrupted for one reason or another. For example, some people had made a personal choice to stop taking the drugs, others had been part of a trial of different drug protocols. Most of the 70 people relapsed when their treatment was interrupted, with the virus rebounding rapidly to pre-treatment levels. But 14 of them, 4 women and 10 men, were able to stay off ARVs without relapsing, having taken the drugs for an average of 3 years. End quote. So, I mean, obviously, this is Oh, no, wait, sorry, one more bit. Uh, The 14 adults still have traces of HIV in their blood, but at such low levels that their body can naturally keep it in check without drugs. So, I just think this is an amazing, awesome development in the fight against HIV and AIDS because, hey, you know, I don't know, you imagine something like this being, you know, someone holding up a newspaper and it says, like, AIDS cured! And then there's all these jokes about how everyone instantly just start getting it on without protection. But, Obviously, it's actually going to work this way. We're little pieces of it. We make a little bit of progress, a little bit of progress. And, you know, that's probably down to the fact that we have this instant communication all the time everywhere. And if, you know, when Jonas Salk invented the polio immunization, I, I dare say it would probably be very piece by piece there. It's just that they didn't have that speed of the news cycle. So we don't have one day. It's like, that's it. It's all cured. Anyway. Um... Yeah, the, oh goodness. The, speaking of diseased people, uh these new LBJ tapes uh indicate that Nixon sabotaged the Paris peace talks in order to win an election. This is from the BBC and there's these new tapes that have been you know JFK uh JFK. Lyndon Baines Johnson uh was a president who uh who he was followed by Nixon and Nixon um, was burned by the fact that he kept a lot of tape recordings of his conversations over the phones and stuff. And so, But it turns out LBJ did it too before Nixon came into office. And the, th- one of the most stunning revelations is that Nixon sabotaged these Paris P-talks. We might have had an end to the Vietnam War in 1968, but Nixon deliberately sabotaged things in order to win the election. Here's the way the BBC puts it. <clears throat> In late October 1968, there were major concessions from Hanoi, the capital of North Vietnam, which promised to allow meaningful talks to get underway in Paris. Concessions that would justify Johnson calling for a complete bombing halt of North Vietnam. This was exactly what Nixon feared. Uh, some pers- you know, this emissary named Chenow was dispatched to the South Vietnamese embassy with a clear message. The South Vietnamese government should withdraw from the talks, refuse to deal with Johnson, and if Nixon was elected, they would get a much better deal. So again, I'm just flabbergasted. This is, you know, a, a clear example of a U.S. politician choosing to prolong a war, like deliberately, in order to gain political advantage. And and how many U.S. servicemen died? I don't know. There were a lot of service women at the time. Maybe there were. But you know, how many human beings died? How many North Vietnamese died? How many South Vietnamese people died? And and it's just it was all because Nixon wanted to win an election? How evil is that? That's like the most horrible thing possible. Well, of course, that brings us to George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. Uh, it was recently the 10th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, and there have been some very interesting retrospectives. Uh, the BBC documentary had a really good podcast called After Saddam, and there's several pieces to it. And, you know, a lot of the places he goes to... Uh, he's reporting not only like how different is it from 10 years ago, but how different was it from 5 years ago, right? And it seems to be, like, from his report, a lot of the sectarian violence has sort of died down. But, of course, you look elsewhere, and there's still a lot of horrible violence going on in Iraq. So it makes me curious about what Part 2 will include. I only listened to Part 1 so far. But uh, the BBC paints a relatively calm picture of Iraq right now, and other sources do not... Um, this devastating piece that came out on the internet this week, uh, and it's been followed up in many different places. A guy named Tom- Thomas Young, or Tomas Young, um, he's, he's dying slowly of, uh, I don't even know if it's like cancer or some sort of um, injury that he experienced in Iraq. Uh, he wrote a letter to George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, and he's, it's very scathing. I'm going to read you a little bit here. He writes, I joined the army two days after the 9-11 attacks. I joined the army because our country had been attacked. I wanted to strike back at those who had killed some 3,000 of my fellow citizens. I did not join the army to go to Iraq, a country that had no part in the September 2001 attacks, and did not pose a threat to its neighbors, much less the United States. I did not join the army to liberate Iraqis or to shut down mythical weapons of mass destruction facilities or to implant what you cynically call democracy in Baghdad and the Middle East. I did not join the army to rebuild Iraq, which at the time you told us could be paid for by Iraq's oil revenues. Instead, this war has cost the United States over $3 trillion. I especially did not join the army to carry out preemptive war. Preemptive war is illegal under international law, and as a soldier in Iraq, I was, I now know, abetting your idiocy and your crimes. I have, like many other disabled veterans, suffered from the inadequate and often inept care provided by the Veterans Administration. I have, like many other disabled veterans, come to realize that our mental and physical wounds are of no interest to you, perhaps of no interest to any politician. We were used, we were betrayed, and we have been abandoned. I hope that before your time on earth ends, as mine is now ending, you will find the strength of character to stand before the American public and the world, and in particular the Iraqi people, and beg for forgiveness you should really read the whole letter cuz it's amazing and if you go to democracy now i have a link to his appearance on democracy now he reads it out himself uh and it's a very powerful experience i should have just played that but um yeah anyway um he uh on democracy now he says the reason i decided to do this now uh now so here's the thing okay he's decided to stop taking nourishment he's going to allow himself to die um so he says, the reason I decided to do this now is to, I am on the one hand, sick and tired of being sick and tired. And on the other hand, I don't want to watch my body waste away. And his wife is on the show with him. It's very powerful. Um, yeah, don't don't watch it if you're chopping onions or something. All right. Um, so yeah, also about Iraq real quick. Uh, there was a guy named Dar Jamal who... Uh, went to Iraq, he's been going to Iraq for a long time, and he's been reporting for Democracy Now! And Democracy Now! has a uh, very long interview with him. It's really good. Uh, it aired at the beginning of March. and uh, No, sorry, the 20th of March. That's different from the beginning of March. Anyway, uh, the headline is, Iraq is a failed state existing in, quote, utter devastation. Uh, So here's what he says in a nutshell. The average Iraqi is just barely getting by. And how can they get by when there's virtually no security across large swaths of the country to this day? Where, you know, as we see in the headlines recently, even when there's not these dramatic spectacular days of dozens of people being killed by bombs across Baghdad and other parts of Iraq, on any given day there's assassinations, there's detentions, there's abductions, and people being disappeared and kidnapped. So, yeah, definitely check that out. Um, a lot of stuff to learn about what's going on in Iraq right now. It's easy for us to ignore it because it, it only shows up on the headlines when there's an explosion or, you know, there's retrospectives. But this gives us a chance to look at what's actually happening there now. Because a lot of Americans, sad to say, you know, if it doesn't show up, it's same with Afghanistan, you know, where we have men and I mean, we still have men and women in Iraq, but, you know, we have official uh, presence in Afghanistan, and even that never shows up on the news unless it's you know a bomb, a suicide bombing that takes place and kills a whole bunch of Americans, or um, you know, once in a while you'll have a reporter just sort of say like, eh, here's Afghanistan, like, or here's you know something that happened in the um, the, the parliamentary body. I don't remember. jirga Anyway, um, yeah. Enough of that. <clears throat> Now onto something a little more upbeat. The sequester. The sequester. Oh my God! It's the most horrible thing ever. What is it? People in the UK are like, what the hell are they talking about? Okay, here's here's. This is so stupid. Like, how stupid is America? America is so stupid. How stupid are they? Here's how stupid we are. Okay, the the Congress, the U.S. Congress, the parliamentary body of the United States, has two houses: the Congress and the House of Representatives. oh uh, sorry, the Senate and the House of Representatives. Dude, Petraski, shut up! You don't even know what you're talking about. Um. They are supposed to agree with President Obama about how to solve this deficit problem because we're spending more than we're taking in. Okay, easy. Tax rich people more. No, can't do that. We got to cut spending. So, in order to, that's the Republicans who sound like that. Uh, In order to force themselves to come to an agreement, they set up this basically time bomb and they said, okay, look. We're going to have to come up with some sort of agreement, and if we don't, by the beginning of, I think it was the beginning of March, 2013, we're going to have this time bomb go on. We'll call it the sequester, and it will cut everything everywhere, just huge across-the-board cuts, and it'll be so horrible that we we don't even t- dream of going near that. Well, guess what? We went near it, it went off, now we're experiencing those crazy cuts. And the interesting... There's a number of interesting things about the sequester. But the most interesting for me is that we're finally seeing some defense cuts. and, And they're happening only because it automatically went into action. Now, don't get me wrong. As I've said many times before, I think that... Defense spending has nothing to do with supporting the troops or not because very little of the money that goes into the defense budget gets to actual troops. I'd be all for giving veteran, you know, soldiers a raise. I'd be all for improving benefits and, and, and you know, uh, especially PTSD treatment and, and housing assistance and whatever uh, returning veterans need. But that's not where the money's going. The money is going to huge multinational corporations that create technology that we don't really need. Um, So whatever. There's this infographic from Business Week about the geography of defense cuts. And it's very interesting because a lot of Democrats are even more aggressive about um, not cutting defense than Republicans can be because they live in districts where a lot of that money ends up because the companies are headquartered there or they have bases there. And so we have this eternal system of politicians lining their own pockets, even if it's not something that the country needs for defense. So the defense budget tends to just go up and up and up and up and up. And anybody who who suggests we should cut it is immediately accused of being weak on defense and weak on national security, and they don't support the troops, and their grandmother's a communist and all this crazy stuff. So it's just interesting to see that the sequester is bringing about defense cuts because it's an automatic mechanism. Meanwhile, uh, speaking of scumbags, BP is finally headed to court. Business, we had another article that said after three years, BP is finally headed to court. Tony Award, you're not getting your life back. Uh, why are the Now, here's the thing. This is so interesting because... It's not just BP on trial. The question is, who's responsible for what happened in the Gulf of Mexico when the uh, trans-ocean, whatever it's called, the, the thing blew up and these people died and, and billions of gallons of oil of course went into the Gulf of Mexico. So the, there's three companies fighting about it. BP Halliburton, and Transocean. So these three companies are squabbling that. No, oh, it was their fault. No, it was their fault. No, it was their fault. And of course, obviously, none of these corporate executives is going to step up and go, it was my fault. I will take responsibility for this because that would make their company liable and it just all sorts of stuff, even though they probably wouldn't be because it's a limited liability corporations. I mean, that's the nature of their beast. Externalize all the costs. But the thing I thought was hilarious about this article, so let me read what it says. Why are the opposing sides rolling the dice? Agreeing to go to court instead of settling, right? One lawyer involved in the case explained to me that with BP trying to offload liability on its two main contractors, Halliburton and Transocean, and Gulf state governments trying to get in on the action, the multi-level legal chess match became too complicated to resolve. Now, U.S. District Judge Carl Barbier, a Clinton appointee, will declare in a non-jury trial just how negligent BP allegedly was in contributing to the biggest offshore oil spill in U.S. history. But here's the coolest thing about this story. Business Week, whenever they talk about a big company, they'll put the stock ticker from the New York Stock Exchange next to it. And the stock ticker is usually a three or four letter symbol that each company has unique to them that identifies them on the stock exchange, blah, blah, blah. Halliburton's is Hal, H-A-L, you know, the murderous robot from 2001. (laughs) Please shut the oil off, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. And Transocean's uh, stock ticker is RIG, R-I-G, like oil rig, get it? Ah, dude! So I just find that fascinating. I think you can tell a lot about a company based on its stock ticker. So what about the stock market? Like in Pi, dude, I'm going to solve the mystery of the stock market. No, I'm not! Ah, go. All right, uh, <laughs> fracking, let's talk fracking. Uh, okay, so there's been some interesting developments. Uh, first of all, if you see headlines in the news, and I'm sure all y'all are keeping up with the news, if you see news headlines that say, as this in USA Today said, companies and environmentalists agree on new fracking rules. Okay, don't believe the hype, all right? Do I have that soundbite? Because it's worth playing. I've got to have that soundbite. Yeah, I have it. Here it is. Don't believe the hype! Thank you, Flav. Because this thing about, I mean, okay, uh... I consider myself a pretty diehard environmentalist, and I say fracking is bad. Let's just not do any fracking. Now, I recognize that I'm not an expert on hydraulic shale fracturing. I'm not an expert on mineral resource development. And and a lot of people are saying, like, oh, these fears are overblown. But I'll tell you this, you you know, as just an ordinary layperson, I'm trying my best to understand it, and I'm listening to people on both sides of the issue, and they're sort of talking past each other. I, I, th- I think that the concerns that are being raised by people like Josh Fox, the director of Gasland, and, and experts that he talks to, you know, other sources, you know, and other sides of the discussion don't really respond to those points that they make. They respond to other points, they're these straw man arguments. Anyway, the point is that the news this week was that there's this new organization that's come together to. Um, Create a system of rules for how fracking should be done. So let me read what USA Today writes. Here we go. Some of the nation's biggest oil and gas companies have made peace with environmentalists, agreeing to a voluntary set of tough new standards for fracking in the Northeast that could lead to a major expansion of drilling. The program announced Wednesday will work a lot like Underwriters Laboratories, which puts its UL seal of approval on electrical appliances that meet its standards. Uh, Mark Frankel, uh, an expert on ethics and law at the American Association for the Advancement of Science in Washington, said, the idea sounds promising, but it remains to be seen if the new standards are a significant improvement over existing laws. He said there are also ethical and policy questions. Quote, what does it mean to have an independent board? Who's on it? How do they get on it? He asked. But... Uh, so then later in the article, it says, some critics of fracking weren't swayed by the new plan. Fracking is an inherently dangerous industrial process that takes us away from sustainable energy solutions. Uh, its cost to humans and our environment just aren't worth it, says Kathy Nolan of Catskill Mountain Keeper, which is fighting fracking in New York State. Now here's the thing. It's possible that the people who still oppose fracking and think that this organization won't do any good, that it's possible that they are being hypersensitive and and they're they're the tinfoil hat people and they're they don't know what they're talking about and they're just being paranoid and the the slightly less aggressive and annoying argument says look this is at least a step in the right direction even if it doesn't you know put a halt to fracking at least it makes sure that it's done in a better way and isn't that a good thing but here's the other thing that i worry about these environmentalists that they're reaching an agreement with, they've made peace with environmental groups. I want to know which environmental groups they are and where they come from because we know that big companies like BP and others, um, they, they will sometimes create a supposed advocacy group through some intermediary or they'll pay a PR firm to create an advocacy group. It's called Astroturf. And they come up and they go, We're against fracking recklessly. And then the the company can go, Oh, what do you want us to do? And they go, We want you to agree to a voluntary set of restrictions. And then BP's like, oh, okay, well let's have a negotiation to figure out how we're gonna figure out what the rules should be. And it's it be you know, it could be a case of two puppets with, you know, one guy holding up each puppet. And so I'm skeptical, but I don't want to be totally negative about something that could be a benefit to keeping the environmental destruction of fracking to a minimum because it looks like it's probably going to happen at some point and it, it's, it's, I'm not going to be happy about it and I'm not going to go quietly into that good night in terms of like should fracking happen at all, yes or no. But I also don't want to be the type of person who says, like well, there's no point in trying to make it better because it should never be happening at all. So I'm not going to have anything to do with trying to make it better. Not that I'm involved in this. any What, I talk into a microphone? Ah, fracking meh. I send 100 uh, news stories to my next-door teaching neighbor. Here's what fracking is. You should learn everything about it every night. Anyway, whatever. Um, the Duchess, thank you. She sent me this great article about wind farm sickness. Step back, context. There's Okay, so the, the idea is that we should start... Um, transitioning away from coal and you know unhealthy oil and whatever uh to to natural uh renewable resources like solar and wind power and hydroelectric power and stuff like that but but one of the complaints that's been raised against hydro, uh, wind wind power because you have these turbines people say oh people are getting sick when they live near turbines well this is the interesting thing the article is uh and this is from what the guardian yeah okay Wind farm sickness spreads by word of mouth, Australian study finds. So it's, it looks like it's psychosomatic. Here's what The Guardian writes. Sickness being attributed to wind turbines is more likely to have been caused by people getting alarmed at the health warnings circulated by activists, an Australian study has found. Complaints of illness were far more prevalent in communities targeted by anti-wind farm groups, said the report's author, Simon Chapman, professor of public health at Sydney University. His report concludes that illnesses being blamed on wind farms are more than likely caused by the psychological effect of suggestions that the turbines make people ill rather than the turbines themselves. Oh, he's Australian, isn't he? If wind falls where we're intrinsically unhealthy or dangerous in some way, we could expect to see complaints applying to all of them. But in fact, there's a large number where there have been no complaints at all, Chapman said. The report, which is the first study, I don't know, I kind of feel like that was an okay Australian accent. Maybe that was not at all good, but it's certainly better than the one I'm usually doing. Whatever. The report, which is the first study of the history of com- people in Australia, let me know how was that? That was was it horrible? Was it just merely bad? Was it mediocre? Was it high? Was it good? Was it surprisingly accurate? Uh, <laughs> the report, which is the first study of the history of complaints about wind farms in Australia, found that 63% had never been subject to noise or health complaints. In the state of Western Australia, where there are 13 wind farms, there have been no complaints. And don't get me wrong, look, hey, if these things do cause people to get sick, that makes me uncomfortable. We have to place them in places where humans don't live, and maybe we can try to minimize the effect on the wildlife around it, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. But I would hate to think that, you know, first of all, a lot of these anti-wind farm groups, they're against them because they think they look ugly. I think that's crazy. Every time I see a wind farm, I'm like, oh, dude, that's so beautiful. Because it's a clean way of, I mean, that's the, that's the, that's what it looks like when we get rid of fossil fuels, man. So, whatever. I would hate to think that people who don't like the way they look are able to spread illness, and then we blame them on the wind farms. Speaking of uh, things, uh, (laughs) that was the worst segue ever. Uh, Okay, so there was a democracy... I should have put this up with the Iraq thing. Democracy Now! had a bit uh, about torture at Guantanamo, and uh, there was a a retired U.S. colonel, I think, uh, who... Yeah, Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Couch on his refusal to prosecute an abused prisoner. Um, yeah, there's, a, there's, a, you gotta watch it. It's a fascinating interview. This guy was a um, an interrogator at Guantanamo, or a, no, sorry, he was a, a judge. I think he works on. Um, All right, let me read what it says. Marine Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Couch's friend died co-piloting the second plane to hit the World Trade Center. Soon after, Couch became one of the first military prosecutors assigned to the U.S. military base at Guantanamo Bay to prosecute men alleged to have carried out the terrorist plot. He ultimately would refuse to prosecute one detainee, uh, Mohamedou Uld slahi Quote, "it became clear that what had been done to slahi amounted to torture couch says specifically he had been subjected to a mock execution he had sensory deprivation he had environmental manipulation that is cell is too cold or the cell is too hot he was presented with a ruse that the united states had taken custody of his mother and his brother and that they were being brought to guantanamo couch says he concluded slahi's treatment amounted to illegal torture" Quote, I came to the conclusion we had knowingly set him up for mental suffering in order to provide information, Couch said. We might very well have a significant problem with the body of evidence that we were able to present as to his guilt, end quote. Um, Yeah, so he says later on, you know, and so having had that experience, my immediate concern was if this is how the evidence is being collected in some of our cases, it's going to be inadmissible because it's going to be at least coercive and at worst torture that precipitates that information. End quote. So again, even from a practical standpoint, never mind the human rights elements, but never mind about how we ought to treat enemy combatants, because who knows when we might become enemy combatants in someone else's hands, and shouldn't we have one standard for how everybody treats everybody? Yes, but even if we leave that aside, from a practical standpoint, this stuff doesn't make sense. I it, it, Look, who disagrees with the following statement? I want to see these scumbags in Guantanamo spend the rest of their lives behind bars. Yes, who doesn't agree with that? I mean, you know, I want them killed. Whatever. I don't want them to ever leave a prison cell. Okay, fine. But 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 that means we have to gather the information in a way that makes that stick. That will work to get them behind bars the rest of their life. Not some backdoor like, well, we just drag things out in some Kafkaesque nightmare for the rest of ever. Then that'll make us safe. No, it won't. Because we will catch up some innocent people in that system the same way that King George said, well, we ought to just sentence all the Americans. And we said, no, there needs to be like due process. Let's have a Fifth Amendment where you don't have to testify against yourself. And let's have other protections for, you know, innocent until proven guilty. And then with Guantanamo, we said, nah, never mind, we don't really care about that. Because it's them. It's not us that's being targeted now. I mean, you know, there are some, some ta- someday drones might be dropped against each of us. Because Eric Holder recently said, well, we don't really, uh, yeah, we might be able to kill Americans on American soil with drones. But, eh, you know, we're not going to really take a position on that right now. Speaking of airstrikes, uh, two boys were killed in an Afghanistan airstrike. This is from the New York Times. The victims, Torjan 11 and Andul Wudud 12, were brothers and had been walking behind their donkeys in the Shahid El Hassas district of Oruzgan province when the helicopter fired on them, according to Afghan officials in the district. The two donkeys were killed as well. Haji Mohammed Esmail, head of the district shura or council, said the area was, quote, fully under government control and that we hadn't seen any engagement in the area, nor is the area threatened by the Taliban, end quote. Abdullah Himat, a spokesman for the provincial government in Oruzgan in southern Afghanistan, said that while the shooting was a mistake, there had been pre- Taliban presence in the area, and insurgents had opened fire on the helicopter. So, as always, we have sort of conflicting stories, but the point is that these two boys were killed, and again... Regardless of the human rights element, regardless of what the rules of engagement are, regardless of what they ought to be or whatever. I, you know, I don't, look, hey, I don't want to second-guess people in Afghanistan who have to fight against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda insurgents and terrorists of whatever stripe. Uh, but I, I think that we do have some responsibility, to the people of Afghanistan, not to kill them. And if, if you accidentally kill two boys, that, that's, that's a hideous crime. And somebody needs to go to prison for that, don't you think? We can't even imagine what it's like for people in Afghanistan because we see it through the eyes of ourselves, through the eyes of the people in the helicopter. And that's an important way to see it. But it's also very important to see it from the other point of view, which Garrett was right. You know, when Three Kings, one of the most powerful scenes is when the Iraqi guy is talking to Mark Wahlberg about, well, imagine the bombs dropping in your neighborhood. And they show a suburban neighborhood in America with bombs dropping. Imagine your son walking the dog and a helicopter from the you know North Koreans takes them out. What, what do you think when that happens? And that's, that's, that's also how we need to think about this. We have to be able to think about it from the point of view of the American, or whoever it was, uh, the NATO attack helicopter... And from the point of view of Afghanistan civilians looking at this and saying, those bastards, they killed these two boys. Even if only just because of a practical standpoint. Hearts and minds, right? Um, speaking of places where bombing is a regular occurrence, uh, Democracy Now! had a really cool interview with uh, two... People from Israel-Palestine. The headline is this. United by loss, Israeli and Palestinian dads call for a joint nonviolent intifada against the occupation. And he says... um, So this is Amy Goodman introducing it. We're going to turn now to a new documentary about a Palestinian and an Israeli who were once dedicated fighters for their respective causes, but have since renounced violence and become leading voices for peace. Both of the men, Bassam Aramin and Rami El Hanan, came face to face with the price of war when their young daughters were killed, one by Israeli border police and the other by a Palestinian suicide bomber. The film is called Within the Eye of the Storm. It chronicles these two men's personal stories and their unlikely friendship. So watch the trailer, watch the interview with them it's awesome uh, it's it's a really cool um, look at the the possibility you know the the, the the willingness of people in war zones to say, "Hey we're going to approach this nonviolently because the the thing I always get from students and cynics, is that, well, nonviolence just doesn't work. It's human nature to kill each other. And sometimes you know, if they know enough about the world, they'll say things like, look at Israel-Palestine, or you know, look at all the wars we've had in the last 500 years or whatever. But you know what? There are also movements for nonviolent conflict resolution that happen all the time. So what's the real nature of human beings? Are we trained to kill, or do we have our instinct for killing uh, soothed out of us? Well, I dare say that my opinion is that we can adjust our nature as people, you know? We have two wolves inside of us, one that goes for self and one that works to spread love and peace. And you know what? Whichever wolf we nurture is the one that grows. And, and it, you know, you could argue about, oh, there's a core essence of people, and you never really change that. Fine, I don't care. It, it, the, the power of nonviolence still exists, whether you change people at the core or not. I believe you do, because after all, we used to have a horrible system of lynching and, and, and impunity for racist violence in this country until African-American activists said, we are going to use nonviolence to shake and awaken the conscience of white people in this country. And it worked, right? Not completely, but, but it made a huge progress in the struggle for justice by appealing to the conscience of people who were doing hideous, horrible violence. And the same thing worked in East Timor, and the same thing worked in South Africa, and the same thing worked in India, and it can work elsewhere. And I think this is a beautiful example of how that can work in the Middle East as well. All right, this is actually an amusing story now. Uh, Wisconsin legislator admits to never having transvaginal ultrasound. (laughs) A a male legislator, I should point out. Uh, At a town hall meeting in Spooner on February 21st, uh, Representative Duffy was asked if he supports a bill in the Wisconsin legislature dubbed the Women's Right to Know Her Unborn Child Act. Isn't that a cute, again, Orwellian name? Uh, That would require all women seeking an abortion to get an ultrasound. Duffy responded that he didn't know what a transvaginal ultrasound was. You don't? asked the surprised questioner. No, I haven't had one, he said, drawing laughter from the audience. So there it is! We now know that Representative Duffy has never had a transvaginal ultrasound. But doesn't even know what it is And and that's but that whatever. If you don't know what a transvaginal ultrasound is, you have no business voting on anything that has anything to do with women's health. How's that? At least he admitted he didn't know. I suppose a lot of politicians would be like, oh, I think it's a great procedure. And then they're like, to their aid, they're like, hey, I know what the hell that is. Um, there's a new pope! New pope! I don't even care about the new pope all that much. Although there some, there's a couple of interesting stories I saw about him. Uh, the. And usually when I do a story like this, I'll say, now, for those of you who don't know, but there's nobody who doesn't know that there's a new pope. Everyone knows about the new pope. Uh, new pope, it's just fun to say. New pope! New, try a new Pope uh, the new Pope chooses Francis as his name after the saint of the poor uh, despite being Argentina's top church official there's some background information from USA today about the new Pope Bergoglio he was the um, arch got the biggest Catholic dude in uh, Buenos Aires Argentina. Anyway, despite being Argentina's top church official, Bergoglio, never, li- or Bergoglio uh, never lived in the ornate church mansion in Buenos Aires, preferring a simple bed and a downtown room heated by a small stove. And I think that's kind of cool. I mean, don't get me wrong. He's horribly conservative on every social issue in the world. But, hey, having somebody who is horribly— we're going to have somebody who's horribly conservative. The Catholic Church is in a horribly conservative place right now. And it's not ruled by one person. It's The, per- one, the pope is a figurehead, right? There is a regime— There are regimes everywhere. In the same way that Saddam Hussein was not the whole of the regime that was keeping Iraq under a boot, uh, so too is uh, the Pope, just a figurehead. Anyway, um, it's cool to have a figurehead who cares about the poor, because the last two Popes, I mean, John Paul sometimes talked about the poor, but Benedictine never said a word about it. So uh, it's cool that we'll have a Pope who's going to say, hey, poor. But then there was a very troubling story on Democracy Now!, Damn you, Democracy Now! You're such a buzzkill! Why don't you get out of here? Every time we start celebrating about new pope, you have to come in and be like, Hey, we're acquiescing to death squads! Uh, the headline is Pope Francis' Junta Past, uh, and here's the here's the headline, or the main, here's the lead. Argentine journalist Horacio, Horacio uh, Verbitsky, who exposed Francis' connection to the abduction of two Jesuit priests, says... Quote, during a long period, I heard two versions, the version of the two kidnapped priests that were released after six months of torture and captivity and the version of Bergoglio. This was an issue divisive in the human rights movement to which I belong because the president uh, founding of CELS Center for Legal and Social Studies, Emilio Mignone said that Bergoglio was an accomplice of the military and a lawyer of the CELS, uh, a lawyer for the CELS, Alicia Oliveira, Uh, that was a friend of Bergoglio, says the other part of the story that Bergoglio helped them. This was the two versions. So it's just very interesting. Uh, I would love to know more about it. Uh, That interview is a really good place to start. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Other good news is that India is covering canals with solar panels. There's a really cool picture from the hindubusinessline.com. Close on the heels of commencing use of wastelands in northern districts and rooftops in towns and cities, Gujarat is set to potentially use the existing 19,000-kilometer-long network of Narmada canals across the state for setting up solar panels to generate power. How cool is that? Yay! Solar and wind! Make it happen! Spread them everywhere! Free solar panels for everyone. Please do it now. Do it now. Uh, And finally, in the current events file. Damn, 45 minutes and we're only doing current events. This is going to be a huge, long show. A biggest show. Uh, Okay, this is the most hilarious article I've ever heard. Uh, CPAC is this uh, political action committee. That's what PAC stands for in the United States. Uh, And CPAC is Conservative PAC. And they had this thing, this forum recently about how to... Get more voters of color to vote for Republicans and other conservatives, and uh, the, I just find it amazing that you have enough African Americans and you know Latinos and stuff at conservative forums to sort through this stuff. But then again, you know what? Hey, look, hey, there's heterogeneity everywhere. Of course, it makes sense that there's going to be some people of different you know political stripes in various communities. But um, you would think that. CPAC would need to go about it, you know, this whole conservative movement would need to be very very careful about how it proceeds because they don't have the best track record relating to black folks and latino folks and talking about things like immigration and you know the rights of so-called minorities although if you look at it on a global scale white people are the minority whatever. Anyway, so <laughs> here's the story. CPAC's Trump the Race Card Forum derailed by an actual segregationist. A panel on how conservatives can fight back uh, when liberals... This is from the Atlantic Wire. A panel about how conservatives can fight back when liberals call them racists descended into shouting when an actual segregationist joined a CPAC event titled Trump the Race Card. Are you sick and tired of being called a racist and you know you're not one? Led by K.C. Smith and K. Carl Smith, two brothers from Birmingham who are black and who call themselves Frederick Douglass Republicans, the discussion began... Uh, when their argument that the Republican Party can reach out to blacks, women, Latinos, and when it starts talking about the constitutional principles that Douglas espoused when he campaigned for Abe Lincoln. The madness started when Scott Terry, one of the 23 members of the White Students Union at Towson University in Maryland, attending CPAC, raised his hand and suggested the GOP might do better as Booker T. Washington Republicans, quote, united like the hand, but separate like the fingers, end quote. Heimbach, president of the Townsend White Students Union, was wearing a rebel flag shirt, a George Wallace button, and beat up black boots. So there you go, people. There's the modern Tea Party movement conservative push is, yeah, making strides to heal the problems of race.
2: We didn't follow the uh, traditional uh, prevailing orthodoxies.
1: Uh, this, th- Sorry, this is the president of Iceland now, talking about why we should let banks go bankrupt and what I- Iceland did differently from the rest of Europe. Of
2: the Western world in the last 30 years. We introduced currency controls, we let the banks fail, we uh, provided support for the poor, we didn't introduce austerity measures of the scale you're seeing here support for the poor letting the banks fail what are you some kind of communist get the hell, ha- get a haircut hippie boo in europe and the end result uh, four years later is that it's I- everything's messed up in Iceland, that's the end result! Iceland is enjoying uh, progress and recovery uh, very different from the other European countries that suffer so-
1: Yeah, of course you'd say that, you're probably freezing to death, you're like, I want to go anywhere other than
2: Iceland But from the financial crisis But were your policy of letting the banks fail, would that have worked for the rest of Europe? I think so, because as I'm often asked people, why Do they consider the banks to be the holy churches of the...
1: Banks are holy churches! Who are you, hippie? Boo! Get a haircut.
2: Modern economy. Why are private banks not like airlines and telecommunications?
1: Uh, I hate to break it to you, Icy, but Captain Icy, Mr. Freeze, ice to see you, Iceland to see you. Uh, I hate to break it to you. We don't let the airlines go out of business either in this country, okay? We don't let the car companies go out of business either in this country, okay? America!
2: companies allowed to to go bankrupt if they have been conducted in an
1: irresponsible you know who's allowed to go bankrupt mom and pop retail organizations in the united states that's who we let go bankrupt suck it mom and pop simple way the theory that
2: you have to bail out banks is a theory about Bankers enjoying for their own profit the success and then letting ordinary people bear the failure through... That's called capitalism, okay? It's called externalizing costs. Boo! Get a haircut, hippie! Taxes and austerity. And people in enlightened democracies are not going to accept that... Well,
1: stop right there, because you said enlightened democracies, and that means we're done. Meanwhile, Hajun Chang, you all know Hajun Chang. Oh my god, I haven't even talked about dark pools. Sorry, Hajun Chang, you're going to have to wait. I've been re- I got that book Dark Pools, which is all about high-frequency trading. This book is amazing. I've got to read you some excerpts from this book. It goes into all these descriptions of the people and the things that led to the current kind of robots taking over the stock market phenomenon we have now. And and just wait till you hear what I have to read to you from this book. Page thirty three. There's this guy named Bodek who has created this system of, you know, high speed trading, whatever, with algorithms. Okay. They're called algos. There's all this amazing terminology. the the big investment firms like fidelity and and you know ban, you know the, the hedge fund managers, they're called whales because they do a lot of big trades, and so the high frequency traders swim along beside the whales and they jump in front of them and they get some profits and they jump back out. That's the way the stock market works now. So they're called whale- if, you, if and they basically say in here, if you're an individual investor and you're not one of these high frequency traders or affiliated with them, you're just a sucker. They're just taking your money. That's Everything you get from the stock market is has a little bit siphoned off by these high-frequency traders. That's what the book said. Read this book, people. You've got to read this book. Okay, anyway. So this guy, Bodek, uh, created a system uh, playing the size game, whatever. It didn't always work perfectly. Bodec's system was coated with a bad trade detection alarm that would blast a loud Homer Simpson-esque not whenever a trade was moving against it. One day, after a trader turned on a new feature across the entire portfolio, the bad trade detection system went manic, screaming out more than 500 does in four seconds! Like a high-frequency mixtape gone berserk. do No, 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 no! <laughs> Bodex traders soon couldn't bear to watch The Simpsons since the sound triggered a gut level panic mode, a twisted re- traders version of post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, let's see if I have a, uh, <laughs> sound clip for that. Boy, I
0: really hope somebody got fired for that blunder.
1: I sure hope someone did get fired. Nobody getting fired for any of these blunders. They're just awesome. Alright, those of you who saw the movie Pi, Aaron Darinovsky, right? Um, at the... Uh, Bodex trades were all managed by The Machine. This is in capital letters. The Machine. At the guts of The Machine was a computer program he called Pi, a reference to the number as well as the 1998 movie by Darren Aronofsky that depicts a paranoid mathematician's quest to unearth universal patterns in nature in stock market data that that movie is about a real guy he he saw that and said yeah that's what i'll do but the guy goes insane in the movie he's literally driven insane by this quest for the stock market unbelievable uh there's a description at the bottom of page 60 and i'm just i'm moving through this as fast as i can but this stuff is absolutely mind-blowing to me um All right, here we go. Uh, So this is what's happening in March 2011. Everything was shifting, evolving at high speeds, all in the dark. The evolution of... This is from the book. This is printed by Crown Business Press. This is not like, uh, oh, some guy doesn't know anything about high-frequency trading. He's an alarmist. This is the description in the book. The evolution of algorithms pumped up on massive high-frequency engines and cutting-edge AI had reached a tipping point. The algorithms were changing so rapidly, devouring one another so viciously in the daily microsecond skirmishes of the algo wars that the market seemed poised on the edge of either a mind-blowing evolutionary leap or a cataclysmic implosion. Its own architects, ace plumbers such as Dan Matheson at Credit Suisse, could barely keep pace with the changes. It was a lab experiment in real time with no turning back. Mathematicians computers computer Computer programmers and physicists were conducting a grand experiment on the global financial system. One of the most chaotic, unpredictable forces on the planet. Prey to the whims of people with their all-too-human fear and greed. They were building the rocket ship even as it blasted off into space. And now we're on that rocket ship. It's unbelievable. Page 62. uh, Chaos to Civilization. Um... In the market route of August 2011, when stocks fell 20% in a matter of days because of escalating concerns about the European credit crisis, message traffic, the beehive humming of all those orders exploded. There's all these things um, that are just absolutely crazy descriptions. Um, Illusion of liquidity. I know some of this is like just notes for myself. Oh, dude, there's a letter opener stabbing. <laughs> that was amazing. uh, uh Rosen snapped. God damn it! He screamed as the trade popped up on his level 2 workstation. He busts out of his office. He bolts up a flight of stairs to this other trading office where these uh, pirates are. You know, they're not really pirates, but they're like the high-frequency traders, basically. The proto-high-frequency traders. You do it again! Bad word! Kill you! He screamed, racing past Mashler. who was sitting at his desk. Mashler grabbed the letter opener. As Rosen closed in on Balby, Mashler lunged, stabbing the letter opener into Rosen's shoulder. Rosen screamed. Blood streamed down his jacket. Despite the wound, he felt lucky. Convinced Mashler had been aiming for his heart. The fat bastard was gonna kill me! Rosen would later tell anyone who would listen. These are the people who are designing the Computer trading algorithms. Let's turn the stock market over to people who stab each other with letter openers. Hey, welcome to the stock market. Ah, my arm. Yeah, welcome. Ah, Stop stabbing me. Don't. Don't. What's that? That's my alarm system. Don't. 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 Ah, Stop stabbing me with a letter opener. The dude came in with a NASDAQ sucks t-shirt. And then when the judge says, uh, tell him to come back in a different shirt the following day, Mashler did his order wearing a t-shirt that read NASDAQ sucks in different colors. Unbelievable. Um, at one point, a guy basically says, ah, I'll build my own system with blackjack and hookers, which is a, a Simpsons, future Futurama reference, which really isn't, uh, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> this was great. Um, the, the, the trading was so fast once these, and this, I mean, this is talking about like the mid nineties or the very earliest, like the, the you know, mid nineties. Yeah. And, and they're talking about how fast things are moving already. Um. The, I'm, at, I'm at page 125 right now, so I'm like barely even a third of the way through the book. The guy goes, Tens of thousands could be lost in minutes, made back the next. No one blinked when a chalk-faced guy doubled over a garbage pail and puked violently, never leaving his seat and trading right through the puke. There's the headline, Trading Through the Puke. <laughs> that's the That's the title of this episode. Trading Through the Puke. Hey Bob, what are you doing? Oh, stop stabbing. Oh, don't don't oh, stabbing. Oh, stop with the stabbing. Oh, the modern stock market. Welcome to the New York Stock Exchange where we trade right through the puke while we're getting stabbed with letter openers. Nasdaq sucks. It's unbelievable. One last thing on page 122 and I'm sure I'll have more next time. Uh where was it? Uh yeah. <laughs> ATD, this company is called Automated Trading Desk. Uh, They started up in 1996. Uh, ATD later designed an artificial intelligence program that could act like a market maker, tracking dozens of market factors such as trading volumes and the momentum of prices and predicting where prices would go during a period of roughly 30 seconds to 2 minutes. It called its pricing engine Borg. Short for Brokered Order Routing Gateway. A nod to the race of evil cyborgs from the popular TV show Star Trek: The Next Generation. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. Do you will be assimilated. Stop stabbing me. Resistance is futile. Welcome to the fun world of high-frequency trading. Anyway, um, Hajun Chang wrote a piece about. <laughs> laziness and poverty and as I've said before but maybe you didn't hear me say it at those times uh, Ha Chang is like my favorite economist in the world along with Paul Krugman and uh, Eve Smith she's awesome uh, anyway Ha Chang wrote a really good book called 23 Things They Don't Teach You About Capitalism and then he wrote another one called Bad Samaritans uh, and, and he wrote one called Kicking Away the Ladder which I haven't read but he's awesome Anyway, here's what he writes. And he's, a, he, he's been an advisor to the International Monetary Fund. He wrote this in The Guardian. Uh, he's, been, uh, he's, a, he's at the London School of Economics. I mean, he's just an amazing, respected uh, economist. On the whole, poorer people typically work harder. They usually work in jobs with longer hours and tougher working conditions. Except for a tiny minority, they are poor despite the welfare state, not because of it. And he's responding to this this myth that's been going around for a long time that, like, poor people are lazy and they deserve to be poor because if they worked hard, they wouldn't be poor and blah, blah, blah. The point comes into sharper relief if we compare nations. According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, uh, people in Greece, that famous nation of skeevers, worked on average 2,032 hours in 2011 only a shade less than the supposedly workaholic South Koreans, 2,090 hours. In the same year, the Germans worked only 70% as long, 1,413 hours, while the Netherlands were officially the laziest nation in the world with only 1,379 hours of work per year. These numbers tell us that whatever else is wrong with Greece, it is not the laziness of their people. So thank you, Hajun Chang, for coming forth with some intelligent, um, progressive perspective on these numbers and these myths that we hear about so often. Um, Anyway, back to robots doing the work. (laughs) Resistance is futile. Don't, don't, don't. (laughs) Business Week had this article that said, will robots create economic utopia? Now, I've read Business Week for long enough to know that their answer wasn't going to be, oh, yeah, everything's going to be great. Hooray for robots. However, uh, I didn't expect it to be so in sync with what I've been saying me and Business Week, man, we're like this. We're like the board. Resistance is futile. Blah! Don't, 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 don't. Uh, will robots create economic utopia? Basically, the short answer is no. The opportunities offered by the wealth-generating capacity of machines, bits and bytes, algorithms, algorithms, and artificial intelligence will fundamentally shift our societal concerns from how best to generate growth to how best to distribute growth. Out of the article, this is what I've been saying. The real question is not, should we let robots do the work? Because, of course, they will. But you should recur Vonnegut's book, Player Piano, because he addresses this question, and it's a very good book. Vonnegut says people would hate for the machines to do all the work if they didn't get to do work. And, and I agree with that. Anyway, um, but th- that's not the reason the question. The question is, what do we do with all the wealth that the robots generate? Uh, quote, the productive part of the economy will be in great shape, but the distribution of it will be the main problem, says W. Brian Arthur, visiting scholar at the Palo Alto Research Center's Intelligent Systems Laboratory. Quote, the big problem from 2010 and on is distributing all the wealth, getting it into human hands. End quote. Amen, dude! W. Brian Arthur, I love you! The workplace is a major institution in society. Work is a social environment with birthday celebrations and coffee clutches, purpose, and hopefully meaning. People who work are less lonely on average than people who don't. People with jobs feel connected to their wider community. Jobs can and should be mentally stimulating and emotionally engaging. Redistributing wealth created by the robotic and digital economy should focus on ways to expand the number of jobs while also boosting worker compensation. For the pa- Again, this is business week! I feel like I'm reading, you know, Karl Marx Times... Whatever. In God we trust. Ah, yes. I, I don't know why he suddenly sounded like Transylvania. Ah, I want to suck your blood. And also, uh, redistribute wealth in the hands of the proletariat. For the past 300 years or so, the way the economy has distributed wealth is through jobs, with pay supplemented by union pressure, child labor laws, pensions, and other share-the-wealth strategies. The traditional method has been breaking down over the past few decades. Inequality has soared, and the great American job machine has sputtered. We now have an opportunity to reverse the trend by expropriating the robots, computers, and algorithms. The challenge of our high-tech economy is how to take a hefty slice of the wealth from the machines and offer ordinary people the reality of jobs with decent wages and compensation. That would be progress! Yes! Amen! Hooray, Business Week! Boo, Iceland president. Get a haircut, hippie. And also from Business Week, uh, Tesco monitors employees with Motorola armbands. Yay, Big Brother's watching you through your Motorola armband. According to the Irish Independent, uh, uh, employees at the company's Dublin Distribution Center are forced to wear armbands that measure their productivity so closely that the company even knows when they're taking a bathroom break. (laughs) That's enough in there, Jenkins! Get back to work! No, please, Mr. Borg, don't come in here! Ah, You've been pooping for too long! Get back to work! Ah, not the letter opener! Stab, stab, stab! Don't, 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 don't! The armbands, officially known as Motorola Arm Mounted Terminals... Ah, uh, isn't that cute? Arm-mounted terminals. That sounds kind of fun. You could Twitter on them, I'll bet. You could like send the hashtag YOLO. Ah, hashtag vomiting, uh, training through the puke. Don't, oh, ah. don't, don't, don't. Resistance is futile. Get back to work. Stop pooping. Uh... <laughs> These armbands look like something between a Game Boy and a Garmin GPS device. What's wrong with it then? It's a Game Boy with a Garmin in it. Like, dude, I'm YOLO. Like, hashtag Rihanna. Like, what's happening? Like, oh, Golden Globes. Hashtag, yeah. YOLO. Uh, look at this meme I got. Get back to work. (laughs) Your allotted time of Twitter hashtagging is over. Get back to work. No problem, Borg dude. Hashtag Borg rules. Uh, the, (laughs) The terminal's The terminals keep track of how quickly and competently employees unload and scan goods to the warehouse and gives them a grade. You have a C minus. Get back to work. Please, not the letter opener. Hashtag not the letter opener. Don't, 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 don't. You did not meet your quota on the last 14 seconds. Get back to work. YOLO. You're going to live a lot less of a life if you don't get back to work. Start with the letter opener. They can't even see you doing it on the radio. Um. The, the, the people who aren't into this gag of me vomiting while stabbing people as a Borg, uh, they're probably bored to tears. Get over it, Piotrowski, move on. Uh, it gives them a great... <laughs> I got a C-minus in unloading stuff off the truck today. <sighs> hey, honey, how was your day? It was like a B-minus kind of day. I felt like it was a B-plus day, but it... The, the Borg told me it was a B-minus day. Oh yeah, they told me something too. No! They told me resistance is futile! Get back to work! <laughs> um. <the laughs> oh my god. It also sends benchmarks for loading and unloading speed. I thought that's what the grades were. Uh, which workers are expected to meet. I wonder if the robots set a slightly higher benchmark than a human worker would. I bet if you asked all the workers, what's a reasonable pace for getting stuff off the truck, they'd tell you, like, one truck every 20 minutes, maybe. And the robots go, you can do one truck in four minutes if you really apply yourself. Uh, The monitors can be turned off during workers' lunch breaks. What is that about? Keep working during lunch. Why can you not take in nutrition and output energy at the same time? Uh, but anything else, bathroom trips, visit to a water fountain reportedly lowers their productivity score. You have a productivity score. You're going to have people who purposely don't go to the bathroom and end up with like bladder infections. I got a bladder infection. Why don't you go to the bathroom? I didn't want to lose my productivity score. I thought I was going to get an A this week. Instead, I have a bladder infection and I'm throwing up. Don't stop trading. I'm not. Oh, my bladder. Don't, 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 don't. Oh, God. Uh, Tesco did not respond to requests for comments, so it's hard to know if the Armands have been a success. Um, now, here's something that really made me pause and, and think, because uh, it's from Business Week, and it says, EU's financial tax is likely to spur trading exodus. Consider what happened in Sweden after transaction taxes were introduced there in the mid-1980s. Quote, taxable trading volumes fell sharply, and actual tax revenues were less than 5% of the expected amount, as 80% of bond trading moved offshore and the options market dried up, says economist Andreas Johnson of the Swedish bank Skandinaviska and Banken. Seba. By the end of 1991, these taxes had been abolished completely. So uh, there is this proposed Robin Hood tax uh, that's been uh, suggested in the United States. Um, that I advocate that very idea that we, tra- we tax Wall Street transactions and that raises a lot of money for the United States. But if it l- leads to a, a trading exodus, that obviously is no good. It doesn't do any good if we're going to drive trading away. Now, I wonder if that's a certainty, if there have been other places where it's been tried and it did work. Um, It's possible to, you know, select certain examples that show that it doesn't work. But then there's other things that we're not considering here. I want to know more about it. But again, I don't want to advocate something that's not going to work. So that made me pause. And I think it's important for us to consider whether that would actually work or not. Anyway. Let's talk about high-frequency trading. We've been talking about it. Get back to Oh, my bladder. Um, American University law student says SEC will regulate high-frequency trading. Now, back up. Why are you reporting on what an American University law student said, Piotrowski? Because there was a speech given by SEC chair Elise Walter, and this guy was in that speech, and he gave his impressions of the speech. So we haven't gotten any official statements from the SEC about regulating high-frequency trading yet, but this guy wrote about the speech, and it makes me think that they will The SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States, uh, which is the buddy, the body that w- the buddy. Yo, buddy, what's up? Oh, my bladder. Uh, they're the organization in the U.S. government that would regulate high-frequency trading if and when it happens. So um, this guy writes, the SEC is in favor of regulating high-frequency trading and will likely justify regulation through prior events, such as the flash crash, coupled with data provided by their new algorithm technology, Midas. Now, I got to tell you, reading uh, 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 dark pools here, it makes me think the SEC is hopelessly out of touch with the speed of development that's been happening on actual high-frequency trading and that their new algorithm technology is probably like what we needed five years ago. Now, that said, hey, something's better than nothing, man. The new software dubbed Midas by the SEC was developed by a high-frequency programmer and will allow the SEC to track all market orders to buy or sell regardless of whether those orders are filled or canceled. Now, a lot of this stuff is getting very technical, even I don't understand it, so whatever. Let's just make through it as soon as we can. Uh, Midas will allow the SEC to pinpoint specific trading techniques often implemented by high-frequency trading firms and possibly link the trades to subsequent flash crashes or market manipulation. Specifically, the SEC will likely use Midas technology to pinpoint and examine excessive cancellations of large buy-sell orders and certain buy-sell orders which only remain open for fractions of a second. Conversely, Chairman Walters said the Midas software will also be used to determine the legitimacy of the claim that high-frequency trading increases market liquidity. The most common defense to the trading practice now this brings me back to dark pools because there's a part where the guy says that what high frequency trading really does is it gives the illusion of liquidity rather than the reality of it now i'm not going to get into that if you're interested to know more about it read dark pools but i'm very skeptical of people who say that high frequency trading increases liquidity in the market Overall, the tone and scope of the content presented made it apparent that it is only a matter of time before the SEC regulates high-frequency trading. For example, the presentation included how the night capital trading losses and the 2010 flash crash were both due to some form of buy-sell order entry that closely resembles high-frequency trading strategies, although high-frequency trading was not directly named. But I do not recall the SEC giving an example of how high-frequency trading could increase liquidity or anything positive about HFT for that matter. Meanwhile, um, Australia just got done with a study about high frequency trading and they found that fears were, quote, overstated, but they're also considering a minimum hold time. So they're sort of talking out of both sides of their mouth. The Australian Securities and Investment Commission, uh, and this is coming to us from FinancialTimes.com, the Australian Securities and Investment Commission also said public concerns about the controversial trading practices had been, quote, overstated and could be attributed to the increasing use of new technology by investors. However, the regulator also recommended resting times for smaller deals. Um, ASIC, the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, said it was recommending a minimum resting time of 500 milliseconds for orders of $500, 500 Australian dollars. Not unless you think there's, you know, these these concerns have been overstated. Uh, 500 Australian dollars, uh, noting that it had uncovered uncovered some possible breaches of market rules that had been referred to its enforcement teams for investigation. Meanwhile, there's this organization called Demos, uh, which does public policy research and stuff on you know ec- economics and the public interest, uh, and they have this report called Cracks in the Pipeline, and it's a several series, a several part series, uh, and and part two is called Cracks in the Pipeline Part Two: High Frequency Trading. And there's a, it's a really good report. It's really long. I haven't finished the whole thing yet, but it's a really good report. I encourage you to check it out. And they say this. The illusion of market liquidity provided by high-frequency trading volume, there you go, uh, leads to the inherent instability of market pricing mechanisms. In addition, aggressive high-frequency tactics mislead market participants in terms fundamental price. That doesn't make any sense. In terms of fundamental price, maybe? Uh, finally, dark pools, trading venues that exist because of high-frequency trades, and that's exactly why the book's called that, uh, they impair price discovery. So, yeah. Read that report if you want to know more about high-frequency trading. A couple more things God, it's taking forever We're at 72 minutes already And we're not even Halfway through the show Well, we're probably More than halfway through the show Anyway uh, European officials Cap banker bonuses At one year's salary Boo Get a haircut, hippie this is from the Spiegel Online, uh, the, the German magazine, and it's about, yeah, ca- dude, starting in 2014, banks in the European Union must limit bonus payments for their employees. After some 10 months of tough negotiations, top European officials agreed late on Wednesday in Brussels to cap bonuses at a maximum of one year's base salary. Wednesday's agreement to implement what will be, what will be the world's strictest pay cap was hard won after months of resistance from member states. Chief among them was Great Britain. Way to go, Brits, which hosts uh, Europe's largest financial sector. London argued that the bonus cap would hobble industry it hobble industry growth. But failed to attract banking from other countries, uh, backing from other countries to prevent the measure. That's pretty cool. We should do that in the United States too. Uh, all right, and then uh yeah, last article in the what is this, economics, whatever section this is. Uh herbicide-resistant or herbicide-resistant superweeds increasingly plaguing farmers. I got to tell you, I first heard about this from Vandana Shiva on Democracy Now! speaking about superweeds, and I thought maybe that was her phrase. She's a really cool person. You should totally watch the interview with Vandana Shiva on Democracy Now! But she talks about the need for us to respect you know, traditional farming practices and to watch out for what Monsanto is doing and Archer Daniels Midland and these huge corporations. Um... I thought she was, like, exaggerating or it's like a simple hyperbole or whatever it is, but it's not. It's in U.S. News & World Report. This is a real thing. Super weeds. Farmers across the country are increasingly finding it difficult to kill super weeds as they become resistant to the most popular herbicides. When Roundup-ready crops became popular in the mid-1990s, farmers were enamored with the genetically modified seeds built to withstand glyphosate the active ingredient in roundup the most popular commercial weed killer but after years of constant exposure certain invasive plants have also developed a resistance leading farmers to use more of the chemical in some cases the weeds have grown completely tolerant to the chemical giving farmers fits Um, Jerry Hirschberg, chairman of Just Label It. He's an American farmer. I was talking to a farmer from Arkansas. See, I'm not prejudiced against people from other places. I was talking to a farmer from Arkansas. He got weeds that are now eight feet tall. They're the diameter of my wrist, and they can just stop a combine in its tracks, he said. Uh, Chairman of Just Label It, an organization fighting for mandatory labeling of genetically modified foods. The only way they can stop them is to go in there with machetes and hack them out. This is messed up. That's the end of the quote. Now this is me. It's messed up. The super weeds are coming and they've got the Borg with them! Oh my platter! Get back to work! Ah! Superweeds strangling me and attacking me with letter openers! Go get them super weeds! Ah, ha. I don't know. I guess the superweeds sound like uh, the guy from Futurama, the stabbing dude. Ha ah, ah, ha! Ah. Ha uh, with a letter opener! Oh, don't no, no,
0: don't no, no. don't don't!
1: Take action at justlabelit.org. There's a link on my blog. Let's talk about education. All right, there's been a number of things that I've found recently I want to talk about uh, with regard to education. Why even say that? It's obvious. We're 75 minutes in and I haven't even gotten to the education. All right. Value-added teacher evaluation models fail kids and communities. Now, this is from um, the uh, some guy's blog. So there's a, an interpretation alert here. And I want to say something to Stu. That's right, Stu. I'm talking right to you right now. You and me, dude, right here. All right. So he's told me a little bit about how schools in the UK are evaluated according to a scale. And it's like, I guess they give letter grades to each school on various criteria. And he was telling me about this when they were trying to choose a school for his daughter. I suppose that that sort of thing isn't very common here in the United States yet. We're getting there. Um, And he says that he finds it very useful because that's how he knows where he wants to send his kid to a school with the highest grade. And that makes sense. But but my question is, how do they evaluate those schools and what happens to the teachers and the administrators and to the students as a result of those evaluations? And I kind of feel like the danger is that if a school gets, you know, evaluated with a bad grade, then. A lot of people who would normally be supporting that school and help making it better by sending their smart kids and their their tax dollars to that school, instead they go to other schools that are already good and there's sort of an exodus of wealth from the school that's struggling and a brain drain from that school as well. And I would hate to see that happen. Even more than it already happens in the United States, so I just get nervous about all these evaluation schemes. And as a teacher, I get especially nervous about the the current trend, which is this thing called value-added um, teacher evaluation models. And Dave Doherty also asked me a question about how do we evaluate teachers if not with this method. And he agreed that like there's a lot of problems in this method. But so then he asked, okay, what? What do we do? How do we evaluate teachers? And and look, I've said this before, I'll say it again. I'm lucky to be in a really good position. I get a lot of support from my administration. The district's really cool. Um, the the state of Wisconsin is making some changes that are requiring different forms of evaluating teachers. And I think the number one thing that ought to happen with teacher evaluation is an honest and fair discussion between the administration and the teacher that says, look, here's what you're doing right. Here's what you need to work on. Here's how you're going to work on it, right? And 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 we're going to help you get better because I think that's the number one thing that teachers respond to. And, and there may be teachers who just don't cut it, right? And they should be, you know, allowed to try to improve. And if they can't, then they're not welcome in the school anymore. Okay, I'm, I'm in favor of that. But, but my question is, how do we evaluate where teachers are? Because right now, there's a big push to include student test scores. And I can tell you as a teacher, there's a lot of reasons why students don't do well on tests. Sometimes it's because the teacher's screwing up, yes. But sometimes it's because the student does not care. They do not put the work in. They don't do homework. They don't pay attention in class. They don't take notes. They don't ask questions. And as a result, they learn very, very little. Should this teacher be blamed for that? I don't think that's fair. Anyway. So what does the research say? Okay, so a new study from a guy named Carabo Jackson of Northwestern University finally supports my hunch. This is the blog dude writing. Finally supports my hunch that our single-minded determination to assess and evaluate the cognitive impacts that teachers have on students is flawed policy at best and failing our children at worst. First, he discovered that non-cognitive skills and abilities like motivation, determination, and self-restraint are a better predictor of future success, particularly for struggling students, than the cognitive skills measured by standardized tests. Perhaps more importantly, he discovered that some teachers are good at increasing the cognitive skills of their students, and other teachers are good at increasing the non-cognitive skills of their students, but most teachers are not good at increasing both cognitive and non-cognitive skills. In other words, if you're teaching to the... This is me now. this If you're teaching... Me, as in Eric Petros, uh if you're teaching kids to to memorize you know dates and and numbers then you're probably not teaching them very well about getting back on the horse when you fall off and 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 trying to solve problems creatively and being motivated and stuff like that so the, the you know what's most important for us to teach kids and the more we emphasize the standardized testing model of regurgitate 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 the less effective kids are going to do in real-world stuff that actually matters to help them become lifelong learners. So here's a quote from the actual research report. Quote, Teacher effects on test scores and teacher effects on non-cognitive ability are weakly correlated such that many teachers in the top of test score value-added distribution will also be among the bottom of teachers at improving non-cognitive skills. This means that a large share of teachers thought to be highly effective based on test score performance will be no better than the average teacher at improving college-going or wages. Because variability in outcomes associated with individual teachers that is unexplained by test scores is not just noise, but is systematically associated with their ability to improve typically unmeasured non-cognitive skills, classifying teachers based on their test score value added will likely lead to large shares of excellent teachers being deemed poor and vice versa. End quote. In other words, sometimes the things that are most important are impossible to measure, and the things that are measured are often not the most important things. Um, Meanwhile, 100 education experts write to the independent to protest misguided UK education reform. Um, This is an article that's been a little controversial. It's in the independent UK, but um, some people have written in criticizing the language and the the writing style of this complaint. And it says, oh, it's proof that these experts, so-called experts, don't know what they're talking about. Whatever. I, I like what they have to say. The proposed curriculum changes uh, consists of endless lists of spellings, facts, and rules. This mountain of data will not develop children's ability to think, including problem-solving, critical understanding, and creativity. Much of it demands too much too young. Uh, this will put pressure on teachers to rely on rote learning without understanding. Inappropriate demands will lead to failure and demoralization. The learner is largely ignored. Little account is taken of children's potential interests and capacities, or that young children need to relate abstract ideas to their experience, lives, and activity. Amen. Um, Black Agenda Report. Why isn't closing 129 Chicago public schools news? Uh, This is from a group called the Black Agenda Report. It's not news because school closings and school privatization, the end game of the bipartisan policies of the Obama administration, Wall Street, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, a host of right-wing foundations and deep pockets, and hordes of politicians in both parties from the president down are pushing down the throats of communities across the country, are deeply unpopular. The American people, and especially the parents, teachers, grandparents, and other residents of poorer neighborhoods where closings and privatization are happening, emphatically don't want these things. Chicago's teachers have done what those in New York, Houston, Dallas, L.A., and others have not, and spent their union dues funding outreach and collaboration with parents across the city, so neighborhood hearings on the school closings are packed to overflowing, with outraged parents, indignant local business people, angry teachers, and concerned students. If CNN, MSNBC, or Fox News gave the school closings and privatization story a fraction of the coverage they gave, deceptive and dishonest pro-privatization movies like Waiting for Superman and Won't Back Down, the outrage against the move to privatize education would become unstoppable. You tell them Black Agenda Report Uh, And then, speaking about Florida, where I used to live, we are the boys from old Florida. Except I think they changed it to, like, we are the kids of old Florida or something like that. Anyway, uh, this is from cloakinginequality.com, and the headline is Water into Wine, Jeb Bush Cheapistas and Education Reform. This is about uh, Jeb Bush, the governor of Florida, has for years implemented this thing called the A-plus plan, and it basically was a precursor to No Child Left Behind. It has everything to do with this privatization push, vouchers, uh, punitively... The use of punitive evaluations, I think that's the thing that really... I wonder most about the difference between the current push for uh, evaluating schools and, and evaluating teachers with, with very big magnifying glasses, uh, the way that it's done in the United States and the way it's done in the UK. Cause I wonder if there's the same punitive thing done in the UK when a school doesn't do when it's graded failing or if teachers are graded as, you know, not doing a good job. Um, there's so many questions to be asked there anyway. So here's what this piece in cloak. What is it? Cloaking says about Jeb Bush and the, conservative business model education reform movement in general quote there is a cadre of politicians that believe we can get something for nothing that we can do education cheaper and cheaper that we can cut billions and billions from education budgets without any impact on our children What is common in all of the cheapistas, new word for educational reformistas, who believe we can turn around education on the cheap, proposals is that we can save the taxpayers a buck and skyrocket test scores if we just adopt X, online education, vouchers, charters, etc., etc. The Jeb Bush posse from Florida has been essentially arguing this logic trail nonstop. Whether it's Jeb's Education Foundation, that was discussed elsewhere on this site, or former Jeb underlings that I have encountered, the basic narrative is that Florida turned water into wine. A miracle. The National Education Policy Center has also looked at the data from Florida and studied the Heritage Foundation's glowing analysis of Florida's educational reforms, their conclusion. The central analysis compares average test scores of students in the nation versus Florida without considering key group differences, an oversight that leads to erroneous causal interpretations on effects of reforms using purely prescriptive data the report further ignores group differences resulting from the state's mandatory grade retention policy for the weakest readers in grade 3 this policy driven increase in grade retention rates spuriously inflated the average scores of grades 4 students on state and national assessments making racial achievement gaps narrower the report also fails to examine test score data on all subjects and grade levels instead relying only on grade 4 reading which showed the most positive results finally although a great deal is known about the reform policies the report promotes it neglects this research literature Serious flaws, calling into question the report's conclusions. End quote. So once again, I feel like we have an, a, a, a story about a miracle being done, uh, amazing things being done to change schools, not through paying more or for smaller class sizes, but through education reformers that put a focus on testing. But then we look into it, and it looks like they're probably just shuffling the numbers around. And that the thing that really bugs me about it is it's not just that, like, oh, look, what I said was right, or like this isn't the gain. Because I yes, I want to see kids make this kind of progress. But I don't want us to say that they're making that progress that they're not. That's lying. And as a teacher, I'm committed to truth. And I will not accept education so called reformers. Lying and shuffling numbers around and pretending like something has happened if it hasn't actually happened. And being willing to take a full and fair reckoning with the way that they've gone about things. Michelle Rhee, Jeb Bush, come on! Meanwhile, in Wisconsin, our illustrious governor, Scott Walker, proposes expanding voucher school programs in Wisconsin. <sighs> this is from the uh, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Walker's voucher school proposal still must be approved by the legislature where conservatives praised it, but Democrats joined public school advocates in harshly condemning it. In the Senate, skeptical Republican senators who blocked some of Walker's voucher proposals two years ago also raised concerns. Okay, go ahead, Republicans against vouchers. Thank you. Um, They also raised concerns of their own about these latest expansion plans. Quote, uh, uh, let's see, Wisconsin guy. Okay. This is the phase one of a wide open school voucher program for the state. Senate President Mike Ellis, a Republican from Nina, said, I'm from Nina. The governor didn't respect the thoughts of about eight or ten Republican senators who didn't want it in the budget. Uh, Public school districts that were added to the voucher program would lose state aid and money generated by property taxes as students went into private schools. So there you go. Finally, robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They
0: look like they're dead.
1: It had to be done. I'll just
0: confirm that they're dead. So that we can have fun. Affirmative. I
1: poked one. It was dead. We got a bunch of things in the Killer Robots file, people, here. So I know we're 88 minutes in, but now it's getting good. <laughs> get back. We already had Killer Robots. Get back to work. Oh, my bladder. Ah, Killer Weeds. What did I say the Killer Weeds sounded like? I don't remember. Ah, get back to work. Ah. Uh, oh yeah, the guy from Futurama. Ha ha! You're so stupid, bitch, as you can't even keep track of your dumb internet meme thing. It's not internet memes, it's a Futurama reference. Whatever, that's just as bad. It's worse, because people don't have access to Futurama the same way they have access to internet memes. There's no Know Your Futurama episode, but there's a Futurama wiki. Never mind! General Stanley McChrystal spoke recently about the use of drones. Uh, This is from a Politico article, and they have a quote from Stanley McChrystal, who is a uh, very high-ranking general in the U.S. military. Although to the United States, a drone strike seems to have very little risk and very little pain, at the receiving end, it feels like war. Americans have got to understand that. If we were to use our technological capacities carelessly, I don't think we do, but there's always the danger that you will, then we should not be upset when someone responds with their equivalent, which is a suicide bomb in Central Park, because that's what they can respond with. End quote. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, I... I I don't. I, I disagree with him about using. I think we do use our technological capacities carelessly, and uh, and that's why we see suicide bombs going off. And we should stop killing innocent civilians with flying robots and start sending out the Borg with the killer weeds. ha! Ah! Don't 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 don't. Uh, fortunately, there's a news story that will calm anybody's fears about robots that want to kill us. Because the headline is, Pentagon Robot Hurls Concrete Blocks. Dude, there's video. Boston Dynamics Big Dog was already one of the most advanced and terrifying robots on the planet. Who am I? I'm reporting from gizmodo.com. Well, it just got scarier because now it can accurately throw cinder blocks at you while on the march. I'm not making this. There's video. Go watch the video. The robot built by Army Research Laboratory Boston Dynamics. Is designed to tramp across uneven terrain and it does a good job of it. But now it's got an extra arm which you can use to pick things up. But it's not that straightforward. The robot coordinates the arm's movement with its legs and torso to really put its back into throwing objects like the cinder block in this video. You don't want to get in the way. Or go on the bathroom break. What are you doing over there? Nothing! <laughs> ah, my face! The cinder block hurts so much! <laughs> get back to work! Ah! her block to my face! Ah! Let her open her to my shoulder! Ah! Ah! Uh, and Jason, ah, Thank you very much for sending me this. Marionette bot fuses connect, and mannequins. Oh, boy! Japan has found new heights. Depths? Uh, this is from Joystick, uh, of creepiness today with the United Arrow marionette bot, a custom Kinect hack pairing Microsoft's motion tracking camera with display mannequins. Basically, you stand in front of it, and you do the Harlem shake, and the robot will do the Harlem shake, or the mannequin in the window of the store. So they have people like spending hours in front of these windows. Like, eh, look, it's good. look, it's the Minister of Funny Walks. Uh, and let's buy that shirt. The mannequins of United Arrows Clothing Store mimic the poses and movements of passerby. It's built as a marketing effort in the video above, despite being the stuff of nightmares. Get back to work! Oh, cinderblock to the face! Um, I don't know why you would shout cinderblock to the face if you had a cinderblock thrown at your face. You probably wouldn't shout cinderblock! That would be the end of it. Uh, ha, ha, ha. People being killed by cinder blocks. Business Week also had an article about tongue computers. But you know about tongue computers? It's the latest thing. It's awesome. Get back to work. Oh, no. Ha, ha. I can stand by the open. Air. Consider the tongue. This is business week. Consider the tongue. <laughs> a tongue. A what? A tongue. A tongue, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Ricky Gervais and Carl Pilking. I pretended to grab a tongue. Uh, it's <laughs> if you're trying to grab a tongue, you could use a pair of tongs. Consider the tongue. It's sensitive yet muscular, packed with taste buds and nerves. And without its acrobatic ability, humans wouldn't be able to eat or talk. It's true. Thank you, Tonguey. You're welcome, Eric. It's also our most versatile sense organ, and some computer engineers say it's underused. Wiccab, a Middleton, Wisconsin based company, on Wisconsin, on Wisconsin, on Wisconsin. I don't know how any songs about Wisconsin go. There's a song called On Wisconsin, but I have no idea how it goes. They sing it at sporting events. Guess who doesn't go to sporting events? And is stabbing himself in the arm with a letter opener. <laughs> uh. <laughs> y has designed a small square array of electrodes for the blind. When placed on the tongue like a lollipop, cue the uh, uh, Lil Wayne song. Uh, See what I did there? I'm hip. I know about those rappers of today. Uh, It turns the feed from a video camera into a pointillist pattern of tactile stimulation. The sensation is like sparkling water or Pop Rocks candy. But after time and practice, blind users report the paradoxical sensation of seeing with their tongues. Okay, that's pretty cool. I just wonder how soon it becomes, tongue computers are now mandatory at this Tesco. Unload that faster. I can't move that faster. Uh, stop stabbing me. Send your block to the... Yeah. Print your own AR-15. This is from aljazeera.com. Uh, so, yeah, you know, there's these 3D printers, which so far have mostly been used to make, like, life-size Mario statues and, like, you know, plastic pieces of crap that have, you know, the shape of, you know, Master Chief or whatever it is. But things are going to get critical, and you can use them for other things. Uh, While 3D printers are still in the testing phase, a downside of the new technology is already becoming apparent. A U.S. company has come up with a blueprint to create gun parts using a 3D printer. One can now get the designs and print their own AR-15 assault rifle with just a click. How interesting is that? Uh, thanks Duchess for the article about dogs understand human perspective according to a study from natureworldnews.com a recent st- they didn't do the re- research I'm sure uh, no it was from the University of Portsmouth's Department of Psychology a recent study reveals that dogs are much likely much likely much more likely to steal food in the dark when humans cannot notice them indicating they understand a human's perspective the study conducted by dr. Julianne Kaminsky of the University of Portsmouth's Department of Psychology claims that when humans forbid the dog from eating the food he is four times more likely to steal the food that he was forbidden to eat in the dark. Interesting. Um, Business Week also had... Uh, did I not talk about this? I must have talked about this to my friends and then like thought I talked about it on the podcast. If I've already talked about this, I apologize. This is the last article in the Killer Robots file and it's absolutely fascinating. The, uh, Business Week, and it's, uh, the headline is First came the Russian meteor, now the meteorite deals people are selling chunks of the meteorite or at least claiming to here we go meteorites are subject to the laws of supply and demand that govern earthly objects says mark ford a longtime coll- collector collector there are people who collect chunks of meteorites that fall to the earth a longtime collector who is chairman of the british and irish meteorite society chairman of the british some meteorites fall into just a few kilograms and they tend to be more valuable Ford says he's heard of some particularly rare specimens fetching as much as $1,000 per gram. Dude, Walt, forget about the blue meth. Go get some meteorites. However, the Chelyabinsk meteor, the one that fell in Russia, right? NASA estimated it's weight weighted between, between 7,000 and 10,000 tons, which means lots of meteorites probably fell and prices are likely to be lower. That's the good news for potential buyers. The bad news, Ford says, that, quote, if you buy now, you'll pay too much. Uh, prices typically plummet after the initial excitement of a major meteorite fall, he says. An even bigger risk is that what you buy won't be a meteorite at all. Russian authorities have ins- issued a stern warning to online vendors saying that police, quote, will be monitoring advertising around the clock. How would you like that to be your job as a Russian police officer? This is a horrible job. Uh, look at the website again. It's uh, selling bullshit. Uh, let's go beat them up. They like go have a camera in our dashboard because everyone has that here in Russia. Why are you talking like Yakov Smirikov? Because he's from Russia. Uh, I used to see you. Uh, Anyone selling phony meteorites, quote, will be immediately prosecuted. Uh, Exactly how Russian police are going to authenticate meteorites was not explained. We have a man in the back room. We feed him a little bit of it. If he doesn't die, it's a fake meteorite. Uh, In the meantime, Scottish dealer... uh, I just heard three listeners in Scotland go, Oh, fuck's sake. He's going to do Scottish accent next. Um... There's a guy named Elliot who is a dealer, and he, he's a Scottish dealer. He says he has looked at a number of online ads for purported Chelyabinsk meteorites. And so far, I haven't seen any meteorites. All I've seen is a lot of old rocks. One particularly imaginative vendor is offering to sell bags of Chelyabinsk topsoil to people who want to search for meteorites in the comfort of their own homes. Buying these is probably not a good idea, as the Chelyabinsk region is home to a major plutonium processing facility that in the 1950s suffered one of the worst nuclear accidents in history! So if you buy a bag of topsoil from Chelyabinsk, you're getting plutonium in the dirt! Here, Timmy, play with this and tell me if you find any big meteorites! Okay, Daddy! Ah, my stomach! (laughs) Ha-ha! Ah, get off it! Let's hang! Let's hang! Uh... Just be glad I'm not doing f- horrible Scottish accents during my bit about the tongue. Uh Ford advises that would-be buyers... Uh, Ford's the British guy, right? The English dude? Uh, I don't, uh, 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 uh. uh Yeah, the head of the British and Irish media. right Now, he might be Irish, but I'm not going to try an Irish accent because I know I suck at those. Uh, the, the leprechaun of The Simpsons. Uh, anyway, uh, Ford advises would-be buyers to steer clear of online ads with blurry photographs. That's just a good rule for life. Hello, everyone. My name is Ford. I- I'm here for a life pro tip. If if you're buying something online and it's got blurry photographs, don't buy it. Thank you. Good night. Um, and to look for rocks with jet black outer coating caused by superheating as the meteorite passes through the atmosphere at supersonic speed. That J.J. Fad song, Supersonic.
0: Supersonic, supersonic, supersonic motivating rhymes are creating.
1: Oh, my God, that's my middle school right there. Supersonic. Oh, I'm going to have to put that on the thing. I'll add that for links to ag, because everyone needs to hear supersonic after they watch a robot th- hurl bricks into someone's face. Uh, so the jet black outer coating is important, because that happens when meteorites pass through the atmosphere at supersonic speed. But, he adds, there are a lot of, there are a lot of black rocks around. Even chunks of tarmac can easily be mistaken for meteorites. So, you know, if you, if, you, if you order a bag of topsoil and it's got plutonium in it and your tongue has. has uh, get back to work. Ha ha! Hey, anyway, this is just tons the tarmac. This sucks. Uh, uh. Ha ha! talking about hip-hop this week oh my god Snoop Lion was on Tavis Smiley and I don't dude Snoop dog Snoop Lion whatever his name is Snoop is a guy that I've always had mixed feelings about because there's no question from the jump that he's always had a good flow and obviously in hip-hop that's very important um but he's never, he's hes always had, I've always had some problems with him. First of all, he's very close to Dr. Dre, which in and of itself isn't a bad thing. Dre is a great producer, but Dre also beat up a woman named D. Barnes when he didn't like what she wrote about one member of his crew. And when he was asked about it later, he said, yeah, it wasn't no thing. I just put her through a door. And he was totally unapologetic, and it's totally messed up. And until I hear Dre apologize for D. Barnes, I think he's a scumbag at heart. Now, that said, um, Snoop is not Dre, and I don't expect Snoop to take responsibility for everything Dre does, but... Um, Snoop has also had a very disrespectful attitude toward women throughout most of his career. And I think it's messed up that, you know, his album had this picture of a cartoon female dog and her just her butt sticking out of the, the, the doghouse. And it's called doggy style. It's like, uh, and all, you know, I don't love them hoes. I'm out the dough. And, and like, it's messed up. And I think that he, he hasn't ever reckoned with that. But I did gain a lot of respect for Snoop when he appeared on Tavis Smiley recently and talked about his career and his move to... uh, He went to Jamaica to make an album. And uh, Tavis Smiley asked him about that trip and his sort of... um, His perspective on where his career has come from and where it's going and the influence that he has on kids and what he's been saying in his music. And there's one really important part that uh, Tavis starts out with, referencing the movie Malcolm X, and I want to play you an excerpt from that because it's a really important bit. You you remember the scene in in Malcolm X where Malcolm's standing out in front of the jail
0: and all these brothers are lined up and they move at, you know this. Snoo's doing the hand gesture right now. That's it. And the line basically is, that's too much power for one Negro. He got too much power, too much control. It's a powerful scene. One of the great scenes for me in the whole movie. Me too. So I was in a conversation about that one day, and somehow your name came up in this conversation, and somebody in the crowd said, uh, as we were talking about you, that if Snoop were saying something, that nigga would be dangerous. If his music were really saying That's, something, I, you know what I hear—that Negro would be dangerous. Now I'm not saying I love you. I ain't, I'm not saying I disrespect. No, you. No, but it's real. But talk, but talk. I love this. I love the fun and the frolic in your music. But now that we got this Snoop Lion thing coming out, does that does that comment resonate with you at all? I feel it right thoroughly because I've always felt like that too. Because I've always been in positions where, for example, I was at the Live A concert. Mm-hmm. And it was over millions of people that seen it because it was broadcast around the whole world. But we was in London in some big part. Mm-hmm. So I looked to the side of the stage. It's Bill Gates, Paul McCartney, David Beckham, just to name a few, mm-hmm. George Michaels. Mm-hmm. I mean, the best of the best when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. They watching me get out. And I'm cussing up a storm <laughs> and... Bop, bop, boop, bop, 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 bop. And they rocking with me. Right. But I look at them like, man, I sure wish I had a... Come together yeah. <laughs> right now in unity. If yeah. I had one of them right now, right. I would have just put them all in the headlock and walked out with them. Right. But I didn't have that. So that made me feel like this album and that comment that you just made is so necessary. Right. This movement is so necessary because I, I haven't been saying nothing. If you really want to be real. I wouldn't real. say nothing, Snoop. But I mean, pertaining yeah. to what what really matters. Right. Like, for example, I have a song on this new album called No Guns Allow. Mm-hmm. Now imagine what that's about. Oh, yeah. All this shooting and killing mm-hmm. that's going on, guns being in the wrong hand. They don't know whether the president should ban guns. Should he do this? Should he do that? Every time you talk about it, somebody getting shot at school the next day. We need to figure this out. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I went to the studio and made a song called No Guns Allow with my daughter and Drake. And it's saying what needs to be said.
1: So I just think that's awesome. I gained so much respect for Snoop based on that. Now you know he he still does the Hot Pockets commercials and there's a style of things. I mean I'll I'll file that under like whatever, just silliness, trying to get money. But then again, he talks about the money. He a lot of the money he's made, he's put into like starting up this football league in in uh, Long Beach, you know where he comes from. So I I feel like he's giving something back to where he came from and recognizing his. Uh, power as a speaker right now, which is something that a lot of MCs don't ever wrestle with and certainly they wait too long to start wrestling with it. Now, I think that that could be said about Snoop and that he took his time getting to the point where he's like, you know what? I haven't been saying anything of value in my music. But you know what? Hey, we're all at different points on the path, man, you know. And, like, I I give credit to anybody who wakes up at any point. Uh, Enlightenment is a process that happens in stages. And all of us need to be woken up all the time. So, um, yeah, judge not let (laughs) awaken not lest ye be awakened. Uh, Yeah. Uh, So, whatever. I just want to give credit to Snoop and give him thanks. And, uh, yeah, I should play something from him now. Here we go. Yeah, I will play I'll play nothing but a G thing, that's a classic. Hey, track. No!
0: What up? One, two, three into the foe. Snoop Doggy dog, and Dr. Drake is at the dope Ready to make an entrance, so back on up. Cause you know we're about to rip shit up. Give me the microphone first so I can bust like a bubble. Confin and lone beasts together, now you know you in trouble.
1: Ain't nothing but a cheat thing, baby. Uh yeah, I didn't realize it was the uh not the clean version, so I'm gonna go ahead and cut it there, but whatever. You didn't tune in to listen to hip hop anyway. If you like Snoop, then you probably already have that on you, can go play it for yourself. Right now it's time for us to get to the quote of the week. Cornel
0: me your ears. Stop because the is near, but don't panic. you can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention, you gotta listen to here.
1: Cornell West is an American professor of philosophy and religion currently at Union Theological Seminary. He was at Princeton, he was at Harvard before that. He's an amazing guy. He's written a lot of books race matters democracy matters uh he's he's written a lot about philosophy he was in a really good movie called the uh the the life of reflection what is it the the ah it's about philosophy it's a documentary with all these philosophers the the examine life duh so anyway uh you can check him out in that he's also in the matrix movies the second and third matrix movies he plays a character named counselor west uh he's just an amazing guy he's totally cool um yeah, I just can't say enough. He also does a really good show with Tavis Smiley, the guy who was just interviewing Snoop Lion, called Smiley and West. And they do a great radio show every week, so you should definitely check that out. It's available on a podcast. Um, Anyway, Cornel West said this. I am a threat to the degree that I'm telling, trying to tell the truth about America. So let us all be threats insofar as we must tell the truth about America and about everything else. And speaking of truth tellers, I've got to say at the end of the show, I should have started out with this, but... Rest in peace, Chinua Achebe, the Nigerian novelist, uh, one of my favorite writers in the world. Uh, he died this week. He died yesterday, actually, the 22nd of March, and it's a, it's a loss to the world of letters. Um, I wrote the Wikipedia article about Chinua Achebe. It is a featured article. I'm sure it's been edited a lot in, in the days since he died, but you should still go check it out because, you know, there's a lot of really good people who um, maintain the integrity of Wikipedia articles, especially when they get edited a lot like they always do when someone dies. Anyway, um, he's just an amazing guy. He had a really great quote. I should give the quote of the week from Chinua Achebe because uh, it's a great quote here. Uh, this comes from his book, An Hills of the Savannah. Whatever you are is never enough. You must find a way to accept something, however small, from the other to make you whole and to save you from the mortal sin of righteousness and extremism. So there it is, people. Go find stuff to save you. Take something from the other. And I'm going to stop talking now. Oh, my God. I can't believe how long this thing ended up being. 110 minutes. Are you insane? You listen to this whole thing? Nothing else in their lives. Show notes and links to everything in this podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which is at fbesp.org slash synapse. My website is the floating brain of Eric S. fbesp.org, with links to music and fiction and multimedia and lots of other stuff. Shout-outs this week to everybody who listened and all my Scottish listeners and my Canadian Wisconsin listeners and Australian listeners, I'm sorry for offending you with my horrible uh, uh, impressions and accents. Although I think maybe some of them weren't so horrible. So I don't know. Write in and let me think. No, let, me, let me know what you think. Um, yeah, uh, shout-outs to uh, Turtle502 for yelling on his conference call. Uh, I don't remember exactly why I'm shouting him out, but it must have been important. Uh, Bongo gave me a Dutch sandwich idea. Uh, thank you, Bongo, and uh, the Duchess for the news article she sent, and Jason Gallagher, the ones that he sent, and everybody else who sent me things. Um, I don't have a whole lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there's dumb things I forgot to cut out. I don't know what to tell you. I'm a very busy man. Deal with Listen, it. Listen,
0: I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to
1: get yeah. done. Thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions. You can reach me at ESP at org, or you can tweet me at DukeSkath, D-U-K-E-S-K-A-T-H. I will stop talking now. <laughs> Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of ribonucleic records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See Soar for details. Fight the power. Back to work. So powerful. Oh, my bladder! Uh, ha I got the bladder! Open it! Ah, my tongue! My tongue! Oh, my tongue! I got spit everywhere.